0: This episode is brought to you in part by Form Kitchens, Signature Doors and Windows, and Modern in Denver magazine. Now, onto the show.
1: His point was you don't have to be an architect to affect change in the mm. built environment. Mm. And so I think right then and there, I realized that if I were to pursue architecture once I'm out of school, who actually has the creative control. It's not always the architect, right? They're typically hired and engaged to realize a vision. Well, who's in control? It's those who own the property or those with the capital. And so it inspired me to pursue business. And and ultimately, that's what I pursued when I came to Denver. Hi. Hello. 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 Hello.
2: Hello. And welcome to architecting.
0: Good evening or good morning or whatever time you're listening. Uh I'm Rebecca Wagner here with the host of the podcast, Adam.
3: Hey Adam. Who's on the podcast today?
0: Wow, uh, that that was a better introduction than the one we just recorded and that didn't get uh recorded. Wah, wah. <laughs> oh, I hate that. Yeah, so today we have uh, Jorgen Jensen on the the show. Uh former founder of slate real estate advisors and the current co-founder of fantastic frank colorado edition so yeah i i discovered jorgen uh i think he's kind of a kind of a famous guy around town uh well connected and well known but uh discovered him through their their website where they had a a directory of colorado architects uh, a cool list of 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 good architects working and then he uh reached out and invited vessel architecture now further architecture the rebrand mm-hmm. uh to be on the list as well uh good way to my heart <laughs> <laughs> you had a funnier joke that know, the first time it's we so recorded it the second time it's like we're trying to recreate the spontaneity of our it. our first, that that first introduction that didn't get recorded it was just perfect it, <laughs> you have to just imagine how perfect a perfect introduction could be and now we're we're just forcing it anyway sorry jorgen um but yeah he the, he's he's just a cool guy uh got to know him uh a little bit more and he generously came on and helped sponsor the podcast, uh, to help me buy these microphones that then sometimes don't work and don't record an introduction. Uh no, but but came on to sponsor us uh and then got to know him better and uh just just an interesting guy. Uh I think I think probably one of our first guests who's an architecture school dropout <laughs> uh but knows a lot about design and um really really in the design world um in his work with with real estate and uh brokerage um but early on was involved with dana crawford and and the development of downtown um and union station and and just continues to be uh pretty involved so
3: cool looking forward to it
0: yeah it's a good one and this is a a bit of a um a special episode in another way uh we we've only had one season and we'll continue just to have one continuous long season of of this podcast probably but i've been essentially going for about the last two and a half years and um you've going straight and you've uh you've convinced me to take a bit of a break
3: Mm
0: -hmm. uh so we're going to be taking about a two or three month break uh from interviewing new people. Um, so a bit of a pause, uh, but in that time, I think we're going to have some some new kind of projects coming in, maybe a little mini series or a, a little spinoff or two, and then we're going to have lots of upcoming live events and happy hours and hangouts and panels and and stuff like that. So uh, stay tuned, stay tuned for that. Take, yes. Taking a break, uh, and yeah, also we we've rebranded our. Personal firm, uh, vessel, office of architecture to be further architecture office now. So go check that out at furtherarchitecture.com, and um, don't, don't, don't forget us in these next two months. <laughs> Stay tuned for when we come back.
3: I'm uh, not gonna
0: leave you. I'm so scared. Please keep listening. <laughs> uh, no, but yep. Yeah keep uh, keep connecting, keep reaching out, and uh, enjoy this one. Bye. But first, here's a few messages from our sponsors. Hey, so today we have Michael Quinn from Form Kitchens on. Um, look, you know, we, we all have kitchens. Most all of us want better kitchens. Michael, why, why should we get Form Kitchens?
2: I think what you said was sort of the epiphany for our CEO. We all want better kitchens, right? And He grew up doing it as a family business and then as an adult, he saw the beautiful, stunning kitchens we all see on Pinterest and Instagram and basically tried to put one together himself and just couldn't find that aesthetic at a great price point and wondered why the process was so inefficient and so manual. He thought, well, if I'm seeing these online, why can't I just order them online? And so that's really the idea behind Form Kitchens is not only to design and deliver beautiful stunning modern kitchens but to wrap the whole design process in a really modern context so we design all online we've built our own software that powers the experience and it's all really about streamlining and simplifying high-end design and then through a direct consumer model really just making it more affordable and more accessible
0: yeah The great thing is that Michael uh, is here in Denver, so you can reach out to him as well. Uh, And if you're looking for more information, we have a special link for the podcast. You can go to social.formkitchens.com backslash architecting. Thanks for the partnership, Michael.
2: Thanks, Adam. Really cool what you've created over at Architecting. We're excited to start to be a part of the community. And and like you said, never hesitate to reach out. Uh, I love grabbing coffee. And you can shoot me a note at michael.formkitchens.com. Perfect.
0: Thanks. And now, back to the show. Well, thanks for having me over to your cool little playhouse here. Yeah. A little, little hangout. It's, it's nice. You know, I was just here last night. I was going to say a long time no see. I know. I know. What do you have going well, well, first off, where are we at? And then what do you have going on last night?
1: So we're at uh, the headquarters for Fantastic Frank, Colorado. Fantastic Frank USA. Um, that's right. The first in the United States, but we're in Lojai at 17th and Central. We're in the Edge Lojai condo project. And uh, last evening we hosted our fourth exhibition. It was an opening reception for the uh, fourth exhibit that we've hosted in the Nook, Denver Smalls Art Gallery at the corner of our office here. And uh,
0: it was a great turnout. I was really, I think everyone yeah. was really pleased. Yeah. We caught the the tail end and bringing in our brood of kids and cleaned up the rest of the food table and yeah it was it was fun to meet your kids and, <laughs> and
1: uh, you know the collaboration for this exhibition is with the Colorado Photographic Art Center and you know we sold some art oh, cool. raised some money for their uh, framing the future campaign so <clears throat> they've signed a lease on their next space at the former Art Institute building which is being redeveloped and. Hired Simple Brown to to realize that vision for them, and so we learned last evening that their goal was to raise two hundred thousand dollars over the last. I mean, they've been at this for a few months, and uh,
0: I think they're at one hundred and eighty. Wow, nice! So well on their way. I hope that wasn't one of the pieces of art my kids uh, bought. They like wrote down a bunch of numbers and turned it in. Oh, did they? No, no. We did. We did have a big discussion about how to not touch art, and yeah, it was funny. Like the first thing we did, we came in here, and there's this huge J.C. Buck uh, photo print on the wall, but it's like metallic, and and our kids were like wanted to touch that thing so bad, and and we're like, no, you can't touch it, can't touch it, and then you came up, and we're like, oh, you can touch that. You know, <laughs> no, that's that's not what we're trying to teach them here. Yeah, you you, you correct me on that <laughs> quick. So I had to renege on what i said but yes in theory you can touch that but uh, yeah a well, larger scale
1: even jc when he uh, installed it uh him and his his installer they were like all you have to do is get a damp cloth you can wipe it down i'm like i don't know but he's like trust me we've done many of these prints it's, it's like
0: it's like eight feet by 12 feet or something it's this massive beautiful mountain print but yeah yeah it's a uh,
1: part of his um that was a commission when we first opened our office, we knew we needed a piece for that large wall. And this was a, a series. It actually created a series called Alpine. Mm-hmm. And so he has photographed many mountain scenes that are, you know, without a tripod. So there's nine exposures there, freehand. Oh, really? That's what kind of gives it that yeah, that's painterly effect. So, yeah, all of his works in black and white, pretty incredible large scale.
0: Yeah, I got, I got lucky. I... uh I made him some tacos and he took a took pictures of my tree house and that's what got me into modern in Denver and oh, then, that was your tree house and then and then uh yeah it got me this sponsorship and everything so yeah amazing oh him a lot yeah you've
1: sat with you've connected with him
0: outside of yeah yeah we well. um I connected with him pretty early on and had him shoot uh projects at 359 when I was there 359 design and then yeah we we stayed in touch but
1: He's one of my biggest, uh, inspirations. You gotta love those friends that really inspire you and in- encourage you. And he has since day one. So.
0: Yeah. Seems like you have a lot of those. Like I keep yeah. running across people who know you or just, you know, everybody.
1: Well, those are the good, good friends that keep around and I try to reciprocate. You know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, tell me the, the connection with the Colorado Photographic Art Center.
1: Yeah. So, uh, The CPAC, as a photographer myself, I've always really Mm. appreciated their organization and and what they do. But the real fun connection is about seven years ago when we started Slate Real Estate Advisors, we needed a space. Mm. I was at the Source Market Hall Mm. having coffee, and I was eavesdropping on the couple next to me. And one of the, the women sitting there is Samantha, who's the executive director. And I overheard her saying how Carol Keller, who's a board member, and I think she might have actually been a founder as well, I knew she had this really cool space in LoHi where the CPAC had office and had like exhibition space. And I overheard this conversation that Carol had, uh, CPAC had vacated and then Carol came in and like kind of renovated the space hmm. and she was looking for a tenant or an end user. And so I kind of chimed in and I was like, I know Carol and I know the space. Tell me more about, about this. I, you know, I just started a company and we're looking for space. And so uh, she kind of filled me in. And then I, before you know it, I was talking with Carol and we signed a lease. So our former space was at 1513 Boulder street, just up the street Mm. from where we're at now. We were there for like four years prior to building out this space, but it was very small It was 1200 square feet. It was kind of, it's an art gallery. Hmm. Concrete floors, white walls. I called it the echo chamber. You really couldn't have two people on the phone at the same time, but we made that work as a kind of a launching point for our company.
0: It's funny you say that because we're in a concrete floor, white wall space now. I mean, nice wood paneling. It, yeah, you're not, it's not nice. not, yeah. not nice. But yeah. it's it's larger. There's some acoustic treatments. <laughs> you know, I like I like that idea of just sitting in the source and overhearing conversations and connecting it up i feel like that's a lot of your life maybe or your personality so if we have if we have to drill down into this who are you uh so
1: jorgen jensen um originally from iowa actually i just hit 16 years in denver which (laughs) kind of mind-blowing if i were to summarize i'd say i'm a design-driven real estate broker and developer based downtown denver that's really the gist of it. Although outside of work, you know, I'm involved in a lot of different things, which I'd be happy to talk about here today. And, and uh I don't know, feel feel pretty fortunate to call this place home, having come from Iowa, and proud to be from there. But I mean, how how lucky are we to call this place?
0: Yeah, yes, talk about that. So, where in Iowa did you grow?
1: I grew up just outside downtown Des Moines. Uh, so many people are familiar with the city of Des Moines, but I like to say that I have. Had the honor to pleasantly surprise people when I take them to Des Moines. Yeah. <laughs> it is uh, a fascinating city because it's the world's third largest insurance capital. so you have huh. You have London, Hartford, Connecticut, Des Moines and then New York. Oh really. And so that's 150 years of insurance um, industry there, which obviously came from agriculture. But it's led to so much investment in civic art and culture and so it it makes for a really amazing downtown
0: yeah um had had like your family been in iowa for a long time yeah you have a lot of roots there uh my mother was
1: third generation uh, actually no fourth generation danish american and so this is also a surprise for many people but we have like one of the largest danish immigration communities and largest dutch immigration Hmm. communities i'm half dutch half danish um, but there's also in Eastern Iowa, a real, uh, I think it's one of the best examples of German communal living. <laughs> and so you have these immigration zones and in, in different parts of the state. Yeah. Uh, but I grew up in, in the city of Des Moines, which, you know, luckily had a lot of art and, and cultural elements where when I moved there, I was five, but we grew up right next to the Des Moines Art Center. And there's just this, again, it's it kind of comes as a surprise for a lot of people, but there's really amazing culture there, works of architecture. I mean, we have Chipperfields, Mies van der Roes, am uh, Pei, Richard Meyer, Saarinen. Hmm. I mean, we can keep going, actually. Renzo Piano. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, if you've never been, let me know. It's only an See, hour and a half
0: flight. Have I Have I been? I, I, don't, I actually don't think I have. No, yeah.
1: It's it's uh, Unless you're driving, it's quite easy to get there.
0: Yeah. So did you have a real sense of that design? Foundings, like what, growing up or was that something you found later?
1: I did uh, twofold. You know, I had a single mother who mm. uh, grew up with a single mother who, again, was very Danish and very proud of her Danish heritage. And she knew the concept of hygge uh, yeah. before many before did. Before it was
0: painted on whiteboards and <laughs> cursive all over Uh,
1: No, she literally, I was in college and she she always sent these care packages and one of them, oftentimes there'd be like newspaper clippings, right? Uh. And so like the the Des Moines Register and I I think in this case it was like New York Times or something, but there's a story about who. And now my good friends Alexandra and Kuhn in Eaglevale run a business called Hooga Life. And through connecting with them uh, and getting to understand the concept more, like how it really took off in America and maybe around the world, but it was actually that New York Times article. It all goes back to that article that kind of sparked this craze around Huga, which is, you know, the Danish concept of contentment, coziness. It doesn't really translate perfectly to English. Yeah. But anyhow, she knew how to create a home. She knew how to create spaces with comfort in mind. The second piece of this was my mentor, uh, my best friend's father, I met. I met my friend Ryan in sixth grade, and his father was what you would call a star architect hmm. locally. Yeah. Truly, he had huh. uh, Kirk Von Blunk of Herbert Lewis Krusey Blunk, HLKB, was this like <clears throat> massive firm that had received like international awards. He was one of the youngest fellows in AIA. I think he was like thirty-nine or something. Wow. Uh, David Ajay is another guy that was late 30s when he was initiated as a fellow. But that was really cool because I was always hungry and wanted to follow Kirk around, help him when I could. From sixth grade up until I went to college, I actually worked for him. I worked for him renovating buildings downtown Des Moines. He was one of the first to purchase and redevelop these large warehouse buildings in the historic East Village. What's cool about that was he, like Dana Crawford, you know, our local queen of preservation here Mm -hmm. in Denver, uh, he was inspired by his time in Boston. So he got his master's at MIT in architecture. Uh, Dana actually went to Ratcliffe. That's before they allowed women at Harvard. She went to school at Ratcliffe and also spent time in Boston. Both of them were so inspired by the adaptive reuse projects, the preservation efforts locally, like Newberry Street in Boston. Have you been there before? Yeah. Yeah, so like, great example of of large-scale historic preservation, placemaking. They both brought their visions to their their hometowns or where they live. Denver for Dana, Des Moines for Kirk. Kirk was uh, redeveloping these properties really inspired by also... John Hickenlooper, uh, what was going on in Denver? I've learned later actually inspired many cities across the country. So yeah, I have just to putting that. breweries into brick buildings. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> actually, no, no, not too many people know this, but he, the success of the Wine Coop Brewery in Denver, uh, spawned eight breweries across the Midwest. Des Moines was one of those cities, and Kirk. Von Blanc, my mentor, was the architect of record for the Raccoon River Brewery, so each brewery was place-based named. So,
0: ah, uh, you
1: know, the Raccoon River is right next to this old historic building. Sounds appetizing.
0: <laughs> yeah, and
1: yeah, so <laughs> he actually um, he got engaged with 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 Hickenlooper quite a huh. bit. Came out here for inspirational tours and such. Met Dana Crawford. So, yeah, so for me though, that was that was someone I really looked up to. He um, not only was this like stud architect of civic and public architectures, he did a lot of contemporary works. He was probably more known as a modernist or contemporary architect. However, he developed a knack for historic tax preservation credits, Mm. historic tax credits. And so he really became a master at that and was the first to redevelop these buildings in the East Village, which at the time was comparable to... Larimer Square back in the day, which people right. used to call Skid Row. I mean, yeah. It was pretty pretty scary. I remember um, I spent most Saturdays, most weekends in summers working for him, but I remember there's often times where you're kind of scared because there's riffraff and people heckling you as you're coming in and out of these bu- buildings. But
0: Aren't construction workers supposed to be doing the heckling? It's the <laughs> opposite. You get, you're getting catcalled by the... <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, now it's <laughs> what's cool is I go home and historic the downtown east village is like the place to be right yeah best part of downtown um he also was one he had one of the largest design chair collections um and maybe i'll talk about this later but he he passed away in 2016 and when he passed he had uh his chair collection on exhibition at drake university really and so like some days my job is like helping move these chairs around or it's mostly grunt crew stuff. Yeah. I was, yeah.
0: I was gonna say, like, when when you say you worked for him that long, were you into architecture at all, drawing at all, like models, or yeah, was it pushing a broom?
1: I, I go back to my mother. She day one in Des Moines dropped me into art class at the Des Moines Art Center, hmm. and I still I got married there. But um, I, I get really nostalgic when I go there and think about this as a kid being in these art classes in this amazing it, is the wing of the Serenin building the original and so for me that was really inspiring and i think all through middle school high school i think my favorite class was our class but watching kurt do what he did because he didn't just go in and renovate a building he was the architect like that's what's unique right like i don't think like dana's not an architect so Mm -hmm. she always hired like Triba or some other architect jim johnson Whereas Kirk could go in and kind of be the developer, be the designer, have full control, which I thought was really interesting. But he also, um, I think, inspired me to pursue art and design. You know, just just being in his home, his art collection, the chairs, everything was a little all over the place. Like, you know, I think a lot of creatives are not, they're not always the most organized people. And he would have, like, Frames on frames stacked and 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 you start to understand what that was about, well he's been collecting since he was like really young, like in college, so for me, I don't know, it kind of propelled my interest in architecture, and it's what drove me to pursue architecture as a degree at Iowa State, so later so
0: you were on like a track, right, like you were like, you've been working around this guy and like seeing the insides of a a big architecture firm, and just like, okay, yep, I'm going to be an architect and yeah, Here's Iowa State, and
1: yeah, and actually that that job was twofold though. So I did again. Grunt Crew is like me and sometimes his his son and our friends, but we we were kind of going in and doing a lot more demos. We were encouraged to wear a mask. I didn't always wear a mask, so hopefully someday I don't have an issue like Missoula. Yeah. Yeah. But he also, at the same time, he also had this really amazing architecture firm, and so I was again through mostly through high school when I worked there, but I got to see the ins and outs of, of like how this big studio practice existed in a downtown building. And, and you know, I, if I had to guess, they probably had 100 people working there at one point. Wow, yeah. So pretty inspiring as a as a high schooler.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that's pretty unique to just have access to the architecture world, So I feel like, but then to see it from a principal's point of view at a hundred percent firm. I mean, also very unique. Right. And, and, and really getting into that. So, so yeah, so you, you keep saying what you started an architecture degree or started. Mm. So what, what happened there? I'm, I'm a dropout. I'm an architecture school dropout. Um, <laughs> they end up making the most money, don't they? The, <laughs> drop, the dropouts.
1: Well, I, uh, it was really difficult for me when I decided to, to pursue business, and I, was able, I flip-flopped it. So I started off architecture degree, minor in entrepreneurial studies and business, and Iowa State University was, which is actually one of the top, at the time, is like one of the top 25 architecture schools yeah. in the country. Um, what was unique about their program was it's a five-year program. The first year is design studio. Mm-hmm. That's it. So whether you're landscape, city planning, interiors, graphic architecture everyone has to go through design studio to develop a portfolio yeah and then most people go into the program knowing what they want want to pursue but others didn't so they would have that year to like figure it out and then submit a portfolio so for me that was a very rewarding first year of school cuz they really hammer you hard on how to like work with your right brain not always your left how to? I mean, you know the deal. You've been through it, like all nighters, mm-hmm. building models, drawings, and I loved loved the creative process in that. And I really enjoyed that first year. Uh, it was halfway through my sophomore year where I ended up first summer in college. I ended up moving to Chicago and got a job at the on the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, mm-hmm. which at the time was. The world's largest agricultural commodities exchange. Hmm. So here I am, 19 year old kid from Iowa, design major, working in the pits with all these traders. This is back when they had
0: open outcry. And did you just overhear a conversation in a coffee shop and get that job? Or ha- with my <laughs> best friends, my
1: one of my best friends growing up through church and also demo- uh, through high school through school, her father's brother was Steve Brewer, Brewer Investment Group. I went out there. Uh, we went on a road trip to go to a concert at the House of Blues <laughs> from Iowa. It's like a five-minute drive, or five-hour five drive. And this guy, Steve Brewer, took us in, and by the time we were leaving to go home, he said, you know, if you want to come back here this summer, I can get you a job. Huh. And so it's kind of like an uncle connection. Yeah. Yeah. He connected me to uh, the founders of Spike Trading, and I took this job, and it was it was really crazy because, you know, I'm bottom of the food chain, not making a lot of money, living in Lakeview, like near Wrigley, taking the train at like 4:45 in the morning to get to work, not making much at all. But talk about an eye-opening experience, yeah. right? Like it 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 truly was, and that was the second to last year of Open outcry trading. It all went much. hmm. And actually, the the Merck, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, ended up closing down and moved into the Board of Trade. So wow. that was like the last of an era, hmm. and I got to experience it. But I, br- I bring it up because it I think that time in Chicago, I ended up going back the following three summers. I did four summers there, and it really inspired me to pursue business, understanding that my passion was in architecture and design, ultimately looking at Kirk as like this architect and developer, mm-hmm. So I was inspired by that. And there was actually a moment where Kirk came to Chicago and to visit. And he and I were sitting in the amphitheater, uh, the Frank Gary amphitheater at the Millennium Park, mm-hmm. my office is mm-hmm. right across the street on Michigan. He and I, we sat, we sat at that, in the amphitheater, in the chairs and it's completely empty I was starting to realize that I may go back to school and transition out of architecture. And I was really having a hard time with that. I was battling because I, I think from sixth grade on, I told everyone I knew and loved that I was going to be an architect and this is what I was going to do. And so I was really battling, internally battling with that, that decision. And here's Kirk who's, you know, it's an amazing architect right he's my biggest source of inspiration and always encouraged me to pursue architecture and he said get out <laughs> get out now. you know what he said which it always stuck with me was here we are at the millennium park and on the wall was this big sign that had all the donors you know you've seen the pritzkers and like all these families you know not just philanthropists but like the architects the engineers the whole team and there's probably a thousand names etched yeah. into this wall. And Kirk took a moment to say, Well, look at this look at this wall. Like, you know, for me, I had seen Kirk make an impact on my hometown of Des Moines. I always thought, how cool that he can drive down the street and be like, that's my building I designed mm-hmm. or that's my property I I own. In terms of legacy, he had a built legacy. And I think that's kind of what drove my interest in architecture. And he was like, Well, look at the sign. He goes, Out of all those names, how many do you think are
0: architects?
1: <laughs> yeah. There's just a couple architectural firms and maybe their principals. But outside of that, like the whole point is it takes a village, right? Like there's truly all these people made this Millennium Park project happen, which was like a wasteland, you know, originally. And, and so that kind of stuck with me. His point was you don't have to be an architect to affect change in the mm. built environment. Mm. And so I think right then and there, I realized, well, yeah, that makes sense. And I also realized that if I were to pursue architecture, you know, once I'm out of school, it's who actually has the creative control. It's not always the architect, right? They're typically hired and engaged to realize a vision. Well, who's in control? It's those who own the property or those with the capital. And so, I don't know, it inspired me to pursue business and, and uh Ultimately, that's what I pursued when I came to Denver.
0: It takes most architects until they're out of school to discover that, yeah. that bad truth. All of a sudden, I felt okay about my decision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so you were like, all right, you made the choice, you made the hard choice to get out. You probably didn't have any friends anymore because all your friends were in architecture school. <laughs> they had to make new friends. Did a, a full business business degree. Mm -hmm. And then what? So you kept going back to Chicago in the summers and then you graduated at some point.
1: Yeah. So like I said, I flipped it. So I pursued a finance degree with a minor. So it it made for a great, like at this point I had to be, I had to go fifth year. So I was a fifth year senior, Mm. but it made for a very interesting, like last few semesters in college because I was going from like high level finance, marketing, business, accounting classes to you know, landscape architectural history art mm. history I, I still pursued some of those courses at the design school so it kind of made for this nice for me nice balance in the day and then when i moved to colorado i day one i was i was in sales um i, I was raising capital for different real estate projects this is about one year before the great recession i graduated end of this uh, 2006 moved to Denver in uh, January 2007 so i pursued business but i always had a creative bent i guess and i couldn't always realize that at work so it came down to like well what do i do outside of and i got really engaged initially with the lodo district the downtown nonprofit that you know exists to support businesses in the historic lower downtown neighborhood and i got uh, really involved there. And, and, you know, it's more community development stuff, urban design stuff. But again, I showed up where I had interests. I had passions. And uh, within, actually, in less than a year, Dana Crawford, I got to know Dana. And she had just formed the Union Station Advocates. Hmm. And so she brought me onto the board in 2009. Hmm. And that was cool because I was, like, the only person under the age of, like, 40 I was 23, but, yeah. um, that nonprofit existed to influence, it's like a citizen's advocacy group, but it existed to influence the design excellence around the 19 acres of public space around Union Station. And, uh, so that was kind of cool. You know, I'm, I'm a young guy just moved to Denver and I'm every 30 days I'm sitting down with, you know, Ken Shreppel who founded Denver Infield. And, and so, um, there was architects, developers, preservationists like Dana that were involved there. So I don't know. For me, that was a, a great outlet.
0: And that's just you getting here, boots on the ground, just networking, just meeting people, just flashing that smile, just things, just
1: just showing up. <laughs> just showing up. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that was really um, that was a special moment in time because no one knew what the outcome was going to be for the actual Union Station mm-hmm. building. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and ultimately, you know, they decided to engage Skidmore Owens, Merrill. I mean, all these big international East Coast, West Coast firms that, you know, in terms of for Denver, it was quite the honor to have them involved. So, you know, we, we participate in all these meetings. And then like the goal was always to draft a position. So like, what was our position on this? As it relates to the public spaces, like the plazas and, you know, that whole entire redevelopment site, there's a lot of public realm to be considered. Yeah, so, yeah so I don't know. At an at early age in Denver, it was, it was really fun to be part of that process because you realize, like, what we're deciding to do here today is going to have this, like, lasting impact. And, you know, anytime I go to Union Station now, I can't walk across the plaza or walk down the sidewalk without thinking about that whole mm. moment in
0: time. So it was pretty cool. That's a cool time to get there. You know, it's like I moved here in 16 and so it was already done. You know, it's like, that's always been a thing for me that's done for you of like coming in right before it changes and then having a hand in that has to be interesting and and also probably empowering too, right? It was, I mean, it was, let's just put
1: it this way. When I left Iowa State, I already knew one person moving to Denver other than myself and because everyone's going to Chicago, Minneapolis, back to where they grew up. Um, but there was this undercurrent of energy in Denver. I mean, fast tracks had just been approved, and it's like a multi billion dollar infrastructure uh, project with light rail, commuter rail, everything we see today. But that was just a concept that had been voted on and approved. There was, um, you know, funny to say, but the real world, MTV real world, like happened yeah. in Lodo. Oh, like, yeah. And that brought, you know, I'm a college kid. So yeah. that. That was like a thing. All of a sudden, Lodo's a, a place. Yeah, and you know, obviously, Coors Field sparked the redevelopment of Lodo. But then, things like I, I think that program actually put it on the, the on the map for a lot of people. And it, it was just cool because when I moved here, you could feel and sense this like energy around. Like, oh, people are people are coming, and they're building. The city's growing up. You know, they used to call it Minver or, like, a cow town. Mm-hmm. It's not really the case these days mm-hmm. in terms of, like, you know, it, it's become a real city, so it's been fun
0: to watch. And so you were doing that on kind of outside work stuff, but work you were finding capital for for development and, and projects that you cared about and that, that you appreciated, or is, is, is it kind of 9 to 5, like?
1: Yeah, it was, you know, so I got my Series 22, which is, it's like a securities license for direct participation programs, which is uh, real like syndications. So Mm -hmm. whether it's like an oil and gas lease or a real estate deal development project, you have to syndicate, you have to, you have to raise capital. So you have your general partners who we represented. We raise money for these different general partners. And then you have your limited partners who are the investors. Mm -hmm. And so I was really just hitting the phones making a lot of calls, raising capital. But then, you know, the whole world kind of fell apart. Yeah. And we went from raising like equity capital overnight to having to raise a uh, bridge loan, like debt capital, mm. right? Just to keep these, uh, these contracts alive on certain projects. Specifically, it was, uh, a land and water development company, Renaissance land and water. Mm. So they were buying agricultural, uh, Senior decreed water rights off the South Platte River between Evans, south of Greeley, out to Sterling, and they'd engineered a system to pull that water, collect the water, and provide it to cities in time of drought. And so it was a very visionary project. And you know, I, I wasn't many options when the when the economic collapse hit. And we shared a space with this particular general partner. partners. So like I was in the room with these guys every day. And so I, I just kind of went into survival mode, and I was like, well, how can I help? And I ultimately spent a few years with them, and became a small partner in, in that effort mm-hmm. um, when I was like 27, I think, 20, 28. But but then the Narrabara shell, the whole fracking thing happened, and all of a sudden they needed water for fracking, and all of a sudden it just didn't feel right. Yeah, And uh, not to mention it was more rural versus urban, and I've always been like an urbanist, so... So I, I transitioned out of that. Thankfully, one of my mentors was Amy Harmon of Urban Market Partners. I would say she's hands down one of the most creative, visionary developers in Denver. Hmm. Um, her father-in-law, Steve Owen, like redeveloped the Ice House Lofts oh, yeah. and Streetcar Stables, I believe. And, but she really integrated our community development with real estate development. I had an opportunity in that moment in time to go work for her but it wasn't like I can just like jump into her real estate development projects. It's not always room for someone like me at that time where, you know, like her commitment was I'll let you participate in these conversations and meetings, but you know, you have to get your real estate license. Yeah. So you can earn a living. So that's how that kind of started. Uh, Yeah. So anyways, it it was really inspiring because she was doing really innovative stuff in the In terms of community development. So, as an example, she formed a metropolitan district that really had never been designed in this way previously, where, you know, there's certain things in a city that you have to get consensus on and you have to get stakeholder buy in in order to make change or make something happen. So, at that point in time, the biggest eyesore in the city was the triangle. At right across from the Denver Rescue Mission, mm. Broadway oh, yeah. intersects with Park Ave. Is that Arapaho? I think so. That was a really problematic issue. Like, one, it's so exposed to this, to all these passerbyers in their cars, and and uh, there was drug use, gang crime, and it's homeless. It just was overtaken. And this is probably before you arrived here, so mm-hmm. maybe you don't recall
0: this. Yeah, no, but I know that spot.
1: It just opened and exposed, and so through this metro district, she was able to really get that community buy-in and and stakeholder buy-in and and, uh, commitment to making a change there. So what you see today, Denver Urban Gardens manages that as a a community garden. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's fenced in, and, you know, so that was just another example of, like, early years in Denver where you realize the power that we do have to actually, you know, make change, and it's not easy. It's like you have, but you have to do this, yeah, to make our city better.
0: So, you, so you got that hands-on or close experience of that kind of uh, development, and you're getting your license. And then what? I worked for Amy for
1: a few years as a real estate broker. That kind of took off for me because I was pretty well connected downtown Denver, and I was able to you know, help a lot of people like connect with their first homes and buy their first homes. So that was the first time where I saw something kind of flourish, right? Where I was like, oh, well, this works. And and Amy allowed me to do commercial as well. I've done, back then I was doing commercial and residential brokerage. I took a liking to residential because it's more intimate, uh, more personable. You're on tour with like a friend, but you're, Helping them find their home versus, you know, a team of suits walking in from a company looking for like a big commercial office space. You know, yeah. it just didn't
2: wasn't It wasn't.
1: It wasn't uh,
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, there's a lot of value I, I learned in connecting people to space. Yeah. In that way and, and helping friends find the right space. Um, and so what happened was I realized that I was interested in. Design and I was tracking design, not just in Denver but around the world, and concepts. Really into like lifestyle brands, whether it's like a boutique hotel or that cafe or like whatever it was. Like when I travel, I see these concepts, right? These experiences, yeah. and I was like, "Well, how did how could this relate or translate rather to a real estate brokerage? And I, I hadn't seen anything like that really here in Denver. I, you know, I never worked for a big company like a Sotheby's or a REMAX. I never did that. I, I kind of had to find my own way. And what happened was I, I think I stumbled across this company in Sweden who was, you know, positioning their perspective on real estate, marketing and sales was quite unique. So this company I found uh, and was really inspired by It's called Fantastic Frank. It's what we've now launched as of October 20th. We've launched here in the United States. But go back seven years ago, I was truly inspired by their position on this business, on this industry. It's more than, you know, brokers like to talk about volume and they promote their volume, which doesn't always make sense to me because it's like reminding everyone that, you know, you work with maybe 100 or 1,000 clients versus yeah. 10 great clients or whatever. You yeah. know. And so anyways, I I just, you know, looking at what they were doing, It was more about aesthetics, design, architecture, and truly focusing on highlighting these these elements, these things in in a home, right? And um, there's a lot of press at the time, so I could see and and I could read like what their position was and what made them stand out. And so when I conceived this concept for what was Slate Real Estate Advisors, I I I took I created like a vision board, if you will, like like a, it was like a Word doc, but I took it to the guys that consume and create our graphic designers, and I was like, "This is kind of inspires like what I want to create." Um, and there's actual—I looked back at this recently, and there's screenshots from Fantastic Frank's website. So, at inception or prior to inception, they're a big source of inspiration. You know, it's—it's—it's it's, uh, it's not too often that you, you find a real estate agency that takes so much care. Has a lot of thoughtfulness and intentionality around aesthetics, mm-hmm. and it all obviously translates to photography, right? Yeah, and how they shoot a property where they even engage stylists, which is very unique, I think, to have professional stylists and interior designers, you know, there present helping to create the the imagery you need to like properly present this.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, what was that experience like? You know, I've, I've Obviously, talked to so many architects and talked about starting architecture firms a lot, but starting a, a real estate company, I mean, I'm sure it had, you know, it's a lot of similarities, but what was that experience like for you? Was it a lot of ramen and a lot of uh, hard times <laughs> or just like champagne started flowing uh, right away? Yeah. No. And,
1: uh, no huh? uh, what's, what's funny is I had to pass my employing broker's licensing exam. Huh. That was the first step. You want to start your own brokerage? You have to be an employee broker. So I, uh, in that moment in time, I procrastinated and I was going on this big snowboard trip to Japan and was with with some friends. And I found myself—this is not ideal—but I found myself having to like study for the test on the way there. And then once we're there, it like it snowed like six feet in four days. We're in the north island of Hokkaido, and you know it's a dream to be in Japan. Here I am. I'm having to like. (laughs) Sacrifice a day out on the on the hill or on the slopes to take this test as an online test. You can push it off a week. So you mentioned ramen. So yeah, I I passed the exam. Different, and then, ki- different kind of ramen. Yeah, the real deal. <laughs> yeah, no, but it was um, there's this there's this mo- moment where the guys were out s- snowboarding and I was at home taking this online test and I I passed and I realized in that moment like well now I can start my company. I'd already had, like, hmm. vision for what I wanted to do. And uh, to celebrate, I went and got the biggest bowl of ramen I could find. And uh, it, it was a, a really uh, amazing day because uh, it, it was worth it, right? It's yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. Um, there you go. I should, I should have done this before I flew out of uh, the country, but here we are. And it wasn't easy. I mean, I what I'm talking about is at this point is just an idea. I knew... I knew that in order for me to realize this idea and this vision, I had to find a partner. Hmm. And um, and that's kind of a long story, but I ultimately feel so blessed that I, I actually got connected to Stan Kniss and I think you met Stan last yeah. night, right? Yeah. So um, Stan, who's a very successful broker, he's been doing it, I think he's been a broker for like 25 years. Um, he's more of a condo project sales guy. He's, he works with developers and sells communities, and he's done that most of his career, including the Four Seasons, the 100 condos above the Four Seasons. So here, here's a man who's um, he's really achieved it all, and he worked for a bigger company. So he'd been at Sotheby's and then Kentwood. And he and I connected and around this vision around Slate Real Estate Advisor, like what it means to, one, be a small boutique, be Excited about being small and yeah. not big. I think we're in a world where even architecture firms and definitely real estate brokerages, it's all about big, 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 big. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's, I don't see any joy in that at all. Uh, really understand it at all. But he also had this, um, he, he had more of an understanding of consumer behavior theory than I did. He, he put words and language to these concepts that I absorb and I, I, I live. But I never had a language set around it, yeah. and he did. And so we ultimately really had a shared vision. And so for me, I think the the hardest part early on was finding a partner. I don't think it's fun or wise to try to do it on your own. Yeah. Like, you're a great example of this. You have a partner in Connecticut, mm-hmm. right?
0: And, and I did it on my own for one time, and I stopped and did it again, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think we need partners... Uh, it could be it could be as small as like a graphic design uh, project, a branding project, it could be development project, it could be an architecture firm, a real estate firm whatever it is, it's nice to be able to have a sounding board like a partner, not only to like sharing the risk right and yeah. do something together, but I know that without stand. Fantastic. Frank wouldn't be here. Slay would never have been around or started the way it did. So it's just nice when you have someone to like check yourself mm-hmm. and they'll check you and you can check them.
0: Right. And, and, and fill in, fill in your gaps, right. And, uh, push each other. I think what did he say last night that you are the, the energy or the, uh, the vision of the company and, you know, pushing it forward and he's, uh, first in and first out or something. Writes some checks he, or something. I call <laughs> him like the OG. Right, the he's, OG? The, he's the OG salesman.
1: That uh, first of all, anyone that meets him will tell you like what a joy he has to work with or connect with. And he's got these uh, attributes of like a, a real mentor and leader. And um, I, I realized that in at the same time when I had started Slay Real Estate Advisors, I actually also was pursuing my first real estate development project. Hmm. And that's another example where I definitely could not have done that on my own, right? So back then, this is 2015, I was uh, three or four years into being a real estate broker, working at Urban Market Partners. I had an idea for Slate Real Estate Advisors. And, you know, one day my mother called me and she was really excited about this old building so she's back in Des Moines, Iowa, and she's like, you have to. I was actually traveling. I was in Alaska at the moment, and I was like, okay. Were
0: you just back on the way back from Japan just no, no. to
1: get a kayak? and This was a mission. We literally drove from Seattle to Fairbanks, Alaska, ah. to a five-day trip. Long long story, but but here I am, and my cousin lives there. Uh, so I'm in Fairbanks, and my mother calls. She's like, you have to check out this building. I'm like, well, what are you talking about? She's like, well, it's an old... Train depot, like it's an old uh, Chicago Rock Island railroad train depot. Well, she had so much enthusiasm. I wrote down the address, and uh, I think I got back to Denver actually, and I looked it up. Turns out it was an old rail car barn, so it's like uh, a repair shop for rail cars. Hmm. It wasn't a depot. The depot's like down the line away, um, but it's a massive, massive building. And I looked it up, and I found the listing, and I contacted the brokers, and they sent me a PDF. And I remember looking at this PDF, and I'm like, wow, it's 26,000 square foot empty brick shell. That's bigger than the source. Yeah. And it looks a lot like the source. But I was like, if this were in Denver, at that moment in time in 2015, it would have been like a, a feeding frenzy. Right, yeah. So many developers would have been all over it. But this is in Des Moines, not even downtown. It's like in this old railroad hmm. district called Valley Junction. Anyhow, I looked at it and I was like, oh, well, wouldn't that be nice? But that's not my bag, I guess. So I closed it and forgot about it. Like, I'm not going to you know, do anything. Yeah. I'll just get into you know, realizing, you know, making money. <laughs> so I was, I was like, no way can I do anything uh, with this. And so I forgot about it. But then 30 days later, my mother unexpectedly passed away. I had to go home and, and kind of manage that whole process. And... You know, I think it's like the day after her burial. It was like July 8th, 2015. I was like, well, you know, I'm definitely not going back to Denver for a couple weeks. I'm going to stay here in Des Moines. And I'm the type where I have to like distract my, I have to put my mind on something. Right, yeah. You know, it was obviously one of the hardest points of my life. And so I pulled up that email. And I was like, Hmm. contact the brokers. And at the time, my email was coming from, you know, Urban Market Partners. I looked like a developer. You know, you go to the website and it's like, she,
0: she hadn't cut you off yet? Yeah, yeah. Developer. <laughs> yeah. And so
1: I said, I happen to be in town. I would like to come tour the building. And I contacted a friend of mine who was a, a broker, a local broker I went to college with. And he and I went down there. And when we showed up, um, he was actually a residential broker. And I said, here's a story. Like, I'm touring this building. I'm just interested in it. Um, you have, you're my commercial real estate broker. And I'm a real estate developer, so let's go yeah. let's go tour this building. And we get there, and the owner of the building was there. And we walk in, and the owner knew my friend Colin's father, who just passed as well. And so like, there's this crazy dynamic, right, as we walked in. And then uh, the owner of the building said, well, what's your story? And I'm like, well, I live in Denver, and I work for a developer, um, but I grew up in Des Moines. My mentor is Kirk von Blank. He goes, well, I know Kirk. Kirk's been in this building three times. Hmm. And I was like, well, that's, that's interesting. Kirk was literally just at my, my mother's funeral, you know? Mm-hmm. And so then I contacted Kirk. I was like, Hey, I have to meet with you. I want to run something past you. And,
0: and why don't you like this building? Yeah. Why, why <laughs> have you been there three times? Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, uh, I, I sat with him in his office. I think he thought maybe I wanted to maybe talk about what I just experienced with my mother and life stuff. But I got right to, and I was like, I found out that you're down at the old Rock Island railcar barn. And uh, like, what are your thoughts? What are your interests there? Because where I live in Denver, I have many examples yeah. of adaptive reuse, whether it's Avanti or Source or even Union Station, how they activated that with retail and food and beverage. Kirk goes, well, I'm not so interested in that building as, as much as I am in Fifth Street, which is like the historic Main Street. That was his, he had his sights mm. set on that because he'd already done the downtown East Village thing and the market district thing. He was now looking, and it's only like 10 minutes drive, but he's like looking and it's, it was annexed into West Des Moines. So it's technically the suburb, but it's just like little pocket of like a historic railroad. Mm. And so anyways, he was more interested in a Valley Junction and, and Fifth Street. Long story short, I pursued a project there. It took me a year and a half. I had to raise a million dollars where I fell out of contract a couple of times. I just kept Dripping on it, kept doing it. I mean, I was literally selling homes in Denver, you know, setting aside tax, taking the cash I had and putting it in the project. I had, over a year and a half, I built up an investment and in really just risk capital to realize yeah. a project. Wow. And what was an honor for me was I engaged Kirk Blunk as my architect. Nice. And so here's a visionary preservationist and, and architect um, who had my back on it, you know, and we conceived uh, a concept and a plan. But then 90 days or so after I hired him, he unexpectedly passed away. Oh, man. So it was this Jesus. whole thing where I'm like, wow, like how, you know, and and so he had a partner architect of 16 years, Evan Shaw, and Evan was more of the production guy, right? Like on the computer, Kirk is like connecting the dots, you know, uh, business development guy, right? But when he passed, I looked to Evan, and I was like, hey, you know all of Kirk's tricks, you know all of his contacts, like, you know what he would do? And we started calling it, throughout design development, we called it the Kirk von Blunk, the KVB moments. Uh, what would Kirk yeah. do? And so if I were to take you into the, the project today, which is called the Foundry, the Foundry DSM, uh, the, the website's thefoundrydsm.com, but you can see what we realized there in this project. And I can... Walk through the space or look at the photos and say, "Well, that's a KVB moment. Mm-hmm. That's a KVB moment." He was a, a master at wabi sabi. This mm-hmm. idea of like, let's leave some of the like the historic character. Like, you know, there's beauty and fragility and and imperfection. He was really a master of that bl- blending the modern and contemporary elements with the historic like decay, like and and, and broken elements of the old brick building and such. So. It was really cool to not only honor him, but also my mother through that process, uh, in that project. And, and so the foundry, uh, today is, uh, three, three concepts under one roof. It's a distillery. Um, the founder of Templeton Rye whiskey built out a a massive production facility. They do all types of spirits there. And then that has a 35 foot wall section that looks into the beer hall, which I got to design Mm -hmm. Um, so that was my first time really designing, um, obviously, you know, worked with Evan, the architect, but I was able to bring a vision that was like, Hey, you know, in Denver, like really the source really inspired that whole project. And Kyle, who's a friend and I look up to him in terms of what he and Mickey, his father have done, he met with me along the way. And so like, you'll see some elements of that maybe, but we essentially, we designed a modern European beer hall that functions as like a food truck food court. So Mm -hmm. there's a a third end user, which is a nonprofit commissary kitchen called the Justice League of Food. So the Justice League is made up of all these food truck owners and they have a a mission-based program around job skills training, like giving at-risk or homeless youth ages 18 to 24, the opportunity to learn skills in a kitchen, in a bar, like how to serve, how to prepare food. And, uh, And so that's... Really been probably one of the coolest things I've ever done because today it's still operating. Yeah, I And mean, it's a place we can go and enjoy. So,
0: when, when did that finish up?
1: The first tenant space opened October twenty eighth, two thousand seventeen. The hall at the foundry, and so that's the, the the beer hall, right? So it was an easier tenant space to get up and running versus like a distillery or a big commissary kitchen. Yeah, yeah. So we just hit five years.
0: So, so you were. Again, yes, you were you were hustling there with with that and putting that vision together, and starting Slate at the same time. That project finished up, and and it had a such of a big impact. And what were you able to turn all that uh, energy towards? Right, it, it has to be sort of hard where you could have such a big impact there in Des Moines with that with a building like this, but you're here in Denver where all those buildings are bought up already or or whatever. Yeah, yeah. and so did that all just Focus into to slate all that energy, or it, it really did. And
1: you know, Stan and I had launched Slate. We took over that space I mentioned up the street. We wanted to to grow slowly and, and bring on uh, just a small number of brokers, and and uh yeah, and we we did that. And I, I was able to. I realized like I'm not gonna. It's not like I'm gonna compete with the Zeppelins or Continuums or East West. I mean, I, I'd love to pursue development, but here it's just Different animal. Mm-hmm. Like, if I want to move back to Des Moines, great. I could do more projects like I did, but, um, but I wasn't interested in that. So, yeah, I put all my energies in, Stan and I put all of our energies into growing Slate Real Estate Advisors and which we called more of like a design, you know, a brokers for design conscious buyers, sellers, and developers. Mm-hmm. And then uh, that was six and a half years ago that we launched. So now, you know, if, if you want to talk about where we're at now, we're in the headquarters of Fantastic Frank or Fantastic Frank, full, Colorado. Full
0: circle. Full <laughs> circle. Why did I start a company? <laughs> Why did I develop a <laughs> company when I could have just become the company that I would to be?
1: Yeah. And it, it's actually a really uh, fun story because I mentioned how they inspired us from inception. Anytime we brought on brokers, uh, creative partners, marketers, photographers, we, I would talk about Fantastic Frank we do like a deep dive. Like let's, what are these guys doing? Like, why is this interesting in terms of like how they photograph homes? It's more than like, you know, traditional real estate photography. It's more about f- you got, you got your 35, 40 images, flash on wide angle lens.
0: Mm-hmm. Here's the space. Here's the space. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's not, it uh, doesn't really, it doesn't even really help tell a story of a space when you're, you're just kind of so zoomed out. Mm-hmm. And so they were really good at zooming in and like, Capturing these vignettes. I call them like little moments where like here's how the light comes in and like hits the the dining room table in the morning, or here's how like throughout the day this space might shift with the daylight coming and going. And um and so it's more fun, right? It's like a creative process. How do you how do you capture that? And actually the goal was to create imagery that sparks an emotion, right? Yeah. Which drives interest in a property, get someone in the door to tour it and maybe fall in love with it. So that was something I was always interested in. And then Fantastic Frank did it really, that that was their thing. And, um, you know, they took <clears throat> photographers from the editorial commercial fashion world and turned their eye to architectural architecture, design and interiors. So it, it did, it did create a very kind of collection, you know, Whereas we need 35, 40 photos for the MLS. They're, they're selling homes with like 10 or 12 images or less. Anyhow. um, So that's over the course of like the last six and a half years. Well, my wife and I got married September, 2021. And a week later, after we had our ceremony in Iowa, we flew to Copenhagen where we got engaged and we had a whole week in Denmark or in Copenhagen. And, uh, we left open three days to go somewhere else. And, you know, you look at the map and the time, we're, in the moment, we're like, well, you know, Oslo's here, Helsinki, Stockholm. And we ended up taking a five-hour train to Stockholm and we mm-hmm. had three nights there. The first morning I woke up, I woke up pretty early that day and I was like, well, definitely want to stop by Fantastic Frank's office. It's like their first office.
0: Hey, hey, you know what we should do on our honeymoon? <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> what happened was I emailed like their very like general inquiries email. I was like, "Hey, I'm in town. Um, I, I've been inspired by you guys for seven or eight years. I run a kind of a design led brokerage in in Denver, Colorado, and I, I want to stop by your office. But I thought as a courtesy, I should just email you and let you know." And of course, one of the founders, whose name is Sven, Sven got back to me within an hour, and he's like, "Well, everyone's out of the office today, but I'm here. Come on by." And so Sarah and I were, like, doing something kind of touristy in the moment, I recall. It was, like, a beautiful fall day, but also a sudden it kind of got, like, overcast and rainy. So, it like, it's what you might expect from, like, a day in Stockholm. Yeah. And I was, like, I go, hey, Sarah, uh, I got a car outside. We have an Uber outside. We have to go. We have to go meet this guy. And she's, like, what? I've got a special surprise for you. I'm, like, it'll only take, you know, 15 minutes to get there. We'll take an hour. And she's awesome because she's all about it. And uh, and we went and met with Sven, and we sat there for an hour or an hour and a half and talked about their plans for expansion, which at that point, they're in 10 cities in Europe. Today, they're in 12 or 13 in Europe. And he told me that they wanted to come to the United States. Their position on the United States is that we've become one of the most design-hungry countries in the world. And I think we've always we've always looked to europe right americans mm-hmm. have looked to europe for design fabrication engineering from the cars we drive to the clothes we wear and now like kitchens and architectural <laughs> elements in our homes right but um furniture so they had a their goal was to come to the united states but that was like a 2024 thing or maybe late 2023 well then in april um of this year i got an email from Sven he's like hey uh, we're ahead of schedule. We just formed our U.S. corporation, Fantastic Frank Americas. We'd like to, you know, we're talking to a group in New York. We'd like to talk to you if you're interested in that. Let's jump on a call. So Stan and I had a, a really amazing like first call with these guys. By the time we're done, they're like, "How soon can you meet us in New York City?" So they came from Sweden. We came from Denver, and we 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 met there at the Standard Hotel and had a, a full day of meetings and went out for dinner. You know. For me, this is like a dream, you know? Like, this is so exciting. Yeah, Like in
0: Herzog and the building and, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: And Stan was really excited, too, you know? Like, it was just fun for us. At this point, it's just an exploration. It's not like we're going to go do this. We're going to pursue this path. It's like, no, we do everything with intention and and we take time to figure out next, like, what we want to do. And so he and I had... That first meeting, and then we had 90 days to, you know, we signed a letter of intent. We had 90 days to really explore what this could look like. And a big part of that for us was studying our competition here, just to understand as a small firm, we obviously don't have the support network in, in our office that like bigger firms have. So how do we match that level of service for our people? And that was the deep dive over the summer. It's like, let's really consider further how we, as a small boutique, can provide a level of service that's comparable to bigger firms. And I think, I'm sure you probably experienced that too, running a small architectural design studio. You know, you're not
0: R&L or... You know. Well, they're gone anyway, but yeah. yeah, oh, of are course. they? Yeah, they got bought Oh,
1: well, the, there you go. <laughs> per- Perkins Will. I mean, there you go,
0: yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, I think... uh that's probably you know when you don't have that powerhouse of resources in house. How do you? So it was just a big exploration for us, and ultimately, we we're both really excited to explore this partnership with Fantastic.
0: Was that was that a bit of a like leaving architecture school feeling for you of putting aside the slate like name and brand and and joining up with a different company or?
1: I actually never. You know, everyone asked that question. Yeah. Everyone close to me, friends, family, they're like, What do you mean you're parking slate? Like that's the first question. Like, what's happening to Slate? Like, that's you guys that's your baby. Yeah. Um, I didn't even think about it That mm-hmm. hesitation. And Stan actually put it best. He says, Fantastic Frank allows us to accelerate our path, like where we want to go, where we've always known we want to go and be. Mm. They allow us to accelerate that trajectory to get there and a lot of that comes down to resources so we have i mean every day we're connecting with hq in sweden and i actually changed my phone to military time just so i could you know stay on track because anytime we talk about a meeting it's it's in their their time for yeah. swedish military time so um stan's you know stan and i have come to learn that you know in the past we could be very creative, and we have talented design partners, graphic design partners, and photographers, etc., who help us realize the tools and things we need to do our job. And fantastic Frank now has this whole suite of of assets and tools that we can tap into. Now the American market is very much different than European market, so we're we're adapting some of these tools and, and templates and such. But anyhow, it just kind of. You know they've got our back, and now we can can do what we do best here. And I think they really want to go big across the United States. So it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds.
0: Yeah, where'd that name come from?
1: If you were to ask anyone a fantastic Frank, their response will be, "You are fantastic. We are Frank. There is no Frank." That's funny. There's never I uh, thought for sure. Like I don't know. I don't know why I thought this early on, but I thought maybe one of the was founders had a dog. Or I, something, thought I, yeah. I thought it was like one of the guys' kid. Yeah. And I, I said that this to Tomas Martinez. I was like, so is your kid Frank or who's like, well, that's, that's no, we don't have a Frank. We don't know Frank. Uh, it's actually, here's the quick and dirty on it. It's really a fascinating story. But in 2008, 2009, Scandinavian design was even becoming a more of a global sensation, right? People were really talking about this around the same time like Hugo becomes a concept and um but Scandinavian design was uh, all the rage if you will and they decided that there's an opportunity to disrupt this industry which you know traditional American brokerage we talked about earlier like how they photograph homes and all this well in Europe it's even more lackadaisical people are with their iPhones shooting photos and Mm. the barrier to entry to maybe not in Sweden but in most countries in Europe to get your license, anyone can do it. Um, and so what they wanted to do was bring a level of care around like design and like actually produce imagery that might be more suited for editorial. And so they started in 2009, a design blog and they engaged bloggers and they got up to a hundred thousand users, followers, if you will. And then they, they decided to launch the business. Hmm. So hmm. they wanted to build a, a fan base i guess and yeah. then launched the business
0: that's interesting i mean it's interesting um i think like one of the one of the first ways i came about you was the uh the design directory you put together which was i i think i started maybe you started this podcast first but then discovered that and i'm like oh well yeah here's the list of everybody to interview right here you you had this this directory and list of all the the best architects in town and uh and you know that that sets you really apart for me of of just like okay, here's somebody who cares about about this community and is trying to document it and bring other people to it um what does community in in Denver mean to you, or who is your community you know
1: yeah i I think it's, it's a good question i I feel blessed because I know i I'm involved in a lot of different communities I, My mind goes directly to like my my friend groups in those communities but where I've kind of found, like, where I like to, you know, hang out and play is in more of the creative community. Mm-hmm. So, like, last night, the Nook event was a great example. It's like that is only, you know, that space exists as a platform to really build our community and engage with the art and creative community in Denver. I mentioned a lot of the stuff I did in the past with whether it's Union Station or, uh, you know, what I did with Urban Market Partners. I mean, that was all about creating community. And I I love Denver because, you know, again, coming from Des Moines, having lived in Chicago, like I knew Chicago was too big for me. I was like, well, it might take me forever to build a community, my mm-hmm. community in Chicago. There's more barriers to entry, et cetera. Denver is like the happy medium where it's easier to build a community or find a community and and get engaged. And I think we've seen Denver become the city that it is because You know, there's a lot of um, proud local communities here that are like championing, like in our case, like design excellence in the built environment. I don't know. I feel like, you know, like even today, um, we just got asked to host a uh, conversation for what they're calling the Central Street Promenade project. It's like there's like a design, or there's a there's a bond set aside to. Beautify Oh nice.
0: Central Street. Right here on Central. Yeah. Which is
1: needed. Um. Because yeah. you know, that stretch between the sidewalk and the fence line there and I-25 is kind of a no man's land. Yeah, and
0: there's so much opportunity there. I think about that all the time.
1: Yeah. So um Greg at dig Studios, mm-hmm. he's involved. He's kind of spearheading the conversation. He's now trying to create a community here around conversation. Mm-hmm. Right. So we're actually next Wednesday, we're hosting that first public meeting here. In our space. But I don't I think like last night's probably the best example, right? You saw who showed up. Yeah. That was really that's our community. It's a cool crew,
0: yeah. And then and then you go home to a to a duplex, uh, to a Christian Butler duplex living next to him and get that community. We're we're not connected. (laughs) It's two single families. You're in the same house together with Christian (laughs) Butler. He hasn't found out yet, and
1: (laughs) Yeah, he's uh you did interview him, right? Yeah, okay. yeah.
0: In in his in his uh, house. Yeah. Nice. Right the, right next to you. In the basement? Uh no, just in the living cool. room. In that you know, that beautiful courtyard space there.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he designed and built our home. So yeah, we feel quite honored to to live there. And he's a good friend, so having him next door is awesome. Yeah. And I don't know if you saw but uh We had lived in High Street, the High Street house he designed and built. Uh, Modern in Denver collaborated with the company to create magnets. Yeah, I saw this. And that house was one of the magnets. So I had to buy those, of course.
0: Nice. I I was I was pretty proud. I think I had uh, had like a majority of those magnet architects on the show, or or will be on the show. So yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, Let's see. Sweet. Um, The last thing. uh, I mean, you kind of hit on it, but. Yeah, what, what are you excited about in the future? Like, you, you know, you've built up so much momentum here, had this big change that you've been talking to me about for a little while and an exciting thing, and now that's here. And what gets you jazzed about what's next?
1: Definitely seeing the Fantastic Frank brand flourish and, and grow in the United States. I can think of um, a few different markets where they'd be so fitting. From Chicago to Austin, Park City, Portland, Seattle. So I think they want to grow in this way. Um, they want to grow in this in this country. So I'd love to help make some of those connections, and uh, maybe start those conversations. I'm also I'm really excited about my next development project. It's a personal one. I'm mm. developing a very modern cabin north of Steamboat Springs. I'm most excited about this this project because it's it's one that I'm kind of pursuing personally as as a mountain home. So we just closed on five acres north of Steamboat in Clark, Colorado. It's about 25 minutes north of Steamboat, and uh, friends of mine who bought the property from, they're building a the cabin, and then a friend and I are building our cabin for our families, and we've uh, we're working with. Brian and Kevin over at Effect Architecture. Yeah, yeah, good guys. So, um, it's a good, it's going to be eighteen hundred square foot cabin, mm. and it's on this perfect pitch on this totally perfect Colorado like wilderness on on the Elk River. Can't see your neighbors. I mean, my friend who's building his cabin will be nearby, but yeah, I'm really excited to to kind of realize that. I mean, they kind of conceived the structure and the form where I get to play and have fun is on the interiors. So we had our first uh, one-on-one meeting yesterday around like what I want to do in the cabin versus yeah. what they're going to do next door. So yeah. So I'm excited to see that project come to fruition and, and uh, it's another opportunity for me to create, you know, place in this case, totally disconnected in the Colorado Rockies.
0: Yeah. Well, sweet. You know, I, I just, uh, again yeah i think from the design directory connecting with you and then you were very gracious and and fun just to connect with and then supporting the podcast as well and uh yeah i just i appreciate you helping us come alongside and helping us build this community and uh all the the things you're doing to inspire and promote design here and i'm excited to see uh where you keep taking it so thanks for
2: coming on thank you so much thanks for having me You can visit architecting.com, that's architect-ing.com, to see images from this week's guest. And please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week and keep connecting.
0: Hi, I'm Eli.
2: This show is made by my mom and dad. And these people. Heidi Mendoza. Erin Best. Kyle Brunner. Emily Childs. Trevor Natsko, Zach Huff, Rob Cleary. All right, let's get a coffee. See ya.